You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Amen. If you're able to remain standing, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Two will be our sermon text this morning, and it is a joy to bring God's word to God's very own people. Philippians chapter two, starting in verse one. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, Any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. What a marvelous text before us. In just two short weeks, uh, we'll begin a 12-week series on the supremacy of Christ. This series will take that biblical theme, the theme of Christ's supremacy over all things, and will seek to apply that theme to all of life. And I do want to say by, by way of parentheses or a note, a disclaimer to that series, this is a topical series. So we're applying this biblical theme, the supremacy of Christ to different topics, different issues that confront us throughout life. So this is a topical series. However, I want you to know that every preacher, every guest preacher that we have is a Bible person. (laughs) Um, They are bent toward Bible exposition. So you can expect throughout these 12 weeks to have Bible taught to us. We are not interested in the wisdom of man. I don't care how many PhDs they have after their name. We are not interested in the wisdom of man. Amen. We're interested in the wisdom of God and God's wisdom comes through 
God's word. And so I am eager for us to learn of the supremacy of Christ through this series. After that 12-week series, we will return, Lord willing, to our exposition of the book of Genesis. So we're at a good stopping point right now. You can, if you want, go back and listen to some of those sermons and reacquaint yourself. We went all the way through up into the Abrahamic covenant. And when I return from the sabbatical, we will pick up in a very heavy, dense portion of Genesis, the Abrahamic covenant. But starting this morning and next Sunday, I have the privilege of offering two sermons which will act as a sort of primer to the Supremacy of Christ series. These sermons will seek to set the stage and set our gaze upon the one for whom all things were created. And in light of this aim, our first passage is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Uh, I just have this sermon broken up into two main headings. So if this is helpful, let me share these headings with you. First, Paul gives us a vision for Christian unity. Verses 1 through 4 is simply a vision for Christian unity. And then the rest of this section, verses 5 through 11, is how to get it. So we have a vision for Christian unity, and then we have the way or how to get Christian unity. First, the vision. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me briefly. Here's the vision that Paul lays out. Here's his appeal to us. Paul says, so, verse 1, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, Any affection and sympathy, Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, Paul is writing this letter to the church in Philippi from prison. This is one of Paul's many imprisonments on his path of obedience to share the gospel to the Gentiles. And in part, this letter to the Philippians was a thank you note. It's a long thank you note, but it is a thank you note to the church in Philippi for their ongoing support in the gospel. It's a thank you note, and it's also an encouragement to the church in Philippi that they would continue in the faith, that they would not grow weary in doing good, that they would keep their head to the plow, that they would find their joy in Christ. Paul is saying, keep going, church, keep going. And as Paul writes this letter with Roman chains about his arms and his feet, he imparts some remarkable encouragement. If you've read through the epistle to the Philippians, you, you can't miss the emphasis of joy in this letter. Joy in Christ, which of course is a bit ironic because as Paul is writing about joy and this joy of the Lord is overflowing from his heart, he is in prison, which communicates to us that circumstances and atmosphere don't get to dictate our joy. Christ dictates our joy and he is always with us. Another theme that weaves through this letter is the theme of Christian living. 
As with all of Paul's epistles, he is heavy in doctrine. And then he wants to show us, the church, how this doctrine is to stir our affections and our obedience to the Lord. And so, Paul desires for Christians in Philippi, despite their current struggles, to live lives worthy of the gospel. For Paul, when somebody has been arrested by grace captivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ, when they discover again and again that their sins are actually forgiven and that they're not going to hell, but they're going to heaven for eternity, Paul expects, therefore, that truth to change their life in some way. That this fundamental reality, when grace comes in to the heart by no effort or work of our own, from the inside out, it begins to transform one's life. And so in this letter, Paul is encouraging the church in Philippi to live lives that celebrate or reverberate the gospel from which they have been saved. In fact, that's the immediate context in which we find ourselves this morning. Philippians chapter 2, listen, is simply an articulation on what a life worthy of the gospel looks like. What is a life worthy? Worthy of the gospel look like chapter two of Philippians is your answer. Look at the paragraph, which just immediately precedes our section in chapter two. Look at verse 27 of chapter one. It sets the stage for all that Paul will unpack in chapter two. Look at verse 27, chapter one. Paul writes, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Then keep reading in chapter 2, verse 1, our text this morning, Paul continues this same thought. Now he's going to unpack it further. He says, so... Or therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He doesn't say complete my joy by posting bail for me so I can get out of jail. That's what I would be asking for. (laughs) Complete my joy by getting me out of these chains. But Paul seems to think that his joy would be complete to know, to think about the church in Philippi of being together, being of one mind, of serving one another. Complete my joy. So for Paul then, listen, for Paul, a life worthy of the gospel is a life lived in the context of a local church and striving to be of the same mind with fellow believers. That's a life worthy of the gospel, is a life lived in the context of a local church, an unimpressive local church. I think we're impressive, but you know what I mean. Ordinary local church striving, every member striving to be of the same mind. That's a worthy life, Paul says. 
not writing books or not going on long journeys for Jesus. All of that can be helpful and is certainly worthy of the gospel. But for Paul, a worthy life, a life worth living is a life in the context of a local church striving to be of the same mind. And the question I'm asking myself and I think we ought to ask is why is that the case? Why is Christian unity so important to Paul and the rest of the New Testament writers? Because it's almost on every page. It's so frequent that when we talk about unity, none of us even feels that anymore. We're so inoculated by that language, unity. Yeah, it's, well, it's good to be unified. But why is it on almost every page of the New Testament? Is it because Christian unity makes evangelism more effective? Is Christian unity such a big deal in the Bible because it just feels better when everybody's on the same page? I think both of those are true. Christian unity makes evangelism easier. When we're together, they will know you, Jesus said, by your love for one another. That is true. And unity in any context feels good. (laughs) In a marriage, among families, in a church family, when we're on the same page, it just feels good. So both of those things are absolutely true. But I think there's something else going on with the New Testament's emphasis for unity. There's something bigger that Paul has in mind as to why Christian unity is so essential. Christian unity is so essential because, listen, it reflects the very nature of the God who saves the church. Christian unity is so essential because it reflects the very nature of the God who saves. Let me explain. Notice the unique phrasing in verse 1 of chapter 2. I don't know if you've noticed that. Paul doesn't do that anywhere else in his letters. Look look at the unique phrasing of verse 1 of chapter 2. If there is any encouragement in Christ, that's the Son, any comfort from love, that's the love of the Father, and any participation in the Spirit, that, of course, is the Holy Spirit, then complete my joy by being of the same mind. You see the Trinitarian framework in just verse 1. So Paul is appealing to Christian unity, beloved, on the basis that it was the Holy Trinity which made salvation possible. The love of the Father through the work of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. How did you become a Christian? Through the love of the Father, by the work of the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so God, listen, God who is diverse in persons, yet one in essence. He is Father, He is Son, and He is Holy Spirit. God is diverse in persons, yet one in essence. This same God now saves a people who are diverse in persons yet become united in Christ through the work of the gospel. Therefore, our oneness, our oneness of mind, our unity reflects back to God, his oneness. 
and look right at me. God loves that. God loves when his image bearers reflect back his own character and nature. This is why it is not a wasted life or wasted effort on any level to get on the same page, to be unified as a church because our oneness reflects his oneness and he glories in that. Jesus prayed for this in the high priestly prayer, the most important prayer in all of the world. Jesus prays for this in John 17, verse 11. Jesus said, I am no longer in the world, but but they are in the world. That's the church. And I am coming to you. He's talking to to the Father. And he says, Holy Father, this is what Jesus wants for the church. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Christian unity, therefore, is not a fringe issue for us. It must not be a secondary or or, or some lower tier concern for the church. Christian unity, if having oneness of mind is not something we seek after, it's not something we think about, then we cease to celebrate the God who saved us and we cease to be a faithful church. It is not time wasted to move towards each other, to be of the same mind. And so Paul lays out a vision. This is a, who doesn't want to be a part of that church? I want to be a part of that church. I see wonderful pockets of grace in this church I see it developing on realm. I see it in, in how you gather, how you pursue one another. And we have a long way to go, right? We have a long way to go to be of the of oneness of mind. But I want this vision for our church. Paul says, a life lived for unity in the church is a life worthy of the gospel. It's a life well lived. And so Paul makes his appeal. But how does unity express itself? That's another good question. Why is it so important? Unity reflects the nature of God. That's why unity is important in the church. It glorifies God. But how does it express itself? It's more than just an idea. Yeah, unity, unity, unity. Yes. But Paul goes on to share with us how unity expresses itself. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. Paul says... This is how you get oneness of mind. This is how you get unity in the church. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Ouch. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. So then unity as a church, as I understand Paul, oneness of mind as a church, as I understand the apostle, expresses itself not through self-preservation. Unity in the church expresses itself not through self-preservation, but instead through the consideration of others. 
Christian unity comes when members of a church, a local church, find more joy serving the needs of others than their own needs. Notice that Paul is not talking about mere duty, unless you're thinking, okay, got it, pastor, I'll work harder at that. Sorry, Paul. Lest you think that Paul is after mere duty. Notice how he speaks to the affections at the end of verse one. He says, any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. Christian unity is more about the mechanic. It's more than just the mechanics of it. It's about finding joy, more joy in meeting the needs of other people than meeting your own needs. After all, it was Christ himself who said it is what? Better to give than to receive. I confess, I, I have so much, I'm embarrassed to admit how much growth I need in this area. But Paul is saying, if you have been moved by the gospel, then then be moved toward others. Let your affections be arrested and captured. If you've been moved by the gospel, then be moved towards others and give away what you have received. Don't wait for people to be worthy of your service. That would not be gospel service. Because the gospel came to us when we were unworthy to receive gifts of mercy. So spouses, let's just get really real in church right now. Don't wait for your spouse to be worthy of an apology, worthy of your repentance. That would not be a gospel-motivated marriage. A gospel-motivated marriage in, in conflict, peacemaking is saying... I am sorry for what I've done. And I'm so undone by the gospel and the forgiveness that I have received in Christ that I want to ask you for your forgiveness for my sins. And the same goes for every other human relationship. Paul is saying, if you have been gripped by grace, if you have been moved by God, then that ought to move you toward others with a certain kind of posture. Notice with me that when Paul speaks of unity, this is important throughout the New Testament, but here as well, when he speaks of unity, he doesn't have uniformity in mind. He's he's not saying that everybody ought to sound the same or look the same. They ought to be six, one and, you know, white males. No. As another writes, unity is not found in in an identical lifestyle or personality. Unity, as, as one author writes, occurs when Christian people have the same values and loves. That's when unity happens. That's when we got a shot at unity, when our values are the same and our loves are the same. We're loving the same things. 
In other words, unity happens when men and women in faith, in our faith family, are overcome with their shared gratitude for all that God has done, and they become self-forgetful. That's what I want. I want to be self-forgetful. I'm tired of thinking of myself all day, every day. Is anyone with me? I'm always thinking about what I'm going to eat, where I'm going to eat, how, what am I going to do, what am I going to sleep, what am I going to say, how long am I going to sleep? All day, I'm tired of it. I want the Spirit of God to grant in me and in us a joy of self-forgetfulness and a joy in giving others more than I give myself. Furthermore, being of the same mind doesn't mean that we all have to be of the same opinion. (laughs) He doesn't say, Paul doesn't say, oh, everybody have the same opinion about everything. Thanks be to God for that. I don't know if the church would survive 2020 if we all had to be of the same opinion about politics and mask wearing and all of that stuff that we just went through. Praise be to God that we all don't have to be of the same opinion, but we have to be of the same mind. There's a difference there. Being of the same mind is an attitude of the heart. It's a disposition on values and loves. How we get there is going to look different in different contexts and age groups and backgrounds. Christian unity is a shared disposition of the heart that says to your fellow heirs in Christ, I am for you, I am for you, I am for you. And more than that, in humility, I am eager to put your needs ahead of my own. And in the strength of his grace, when we operate, when we operate with this disposition, and I've seen it at this church time and time again, When we operate with this disposition, we are celebrating the glory and nature of our triune God. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and it is an eternal community of love. They are deferring to one another. They are serving one another. The Son is submitting to the Father, the Father to the Spirit, the Spirit to the Son. They are an eternal coexisting community of love. And when we seek after that with the help of God's spirit and by his grace, we are communicating. We're showing the world what God looks like. It's so many different people with different opinions, different stripes and colors can come together with the same value and love. This ought to be a unique place. Unique in this regard. So Paul, that's the compelling vision for Christian unity. It is compelling. The next question we have to ask is how to get it. How do we, I see it, I want it. How do I get it? Well, Paul says in verse five, look at verse five with me. How do we get this? Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. How do we get Christian unity? Like the real kind, not the one that we all have the same bumper sticker on the back of our cars. 
but the real kind of Christian unity, the kind that, that nobody celebrates on social media. How do we get that kind of real, authentic, family life, same mind, your needs above my own? How do we get it? Paul says, you have to have a different mind. He says, have this mind among you. So everybody, individuals are seeking after a particular mind, not waiting for somebody else to have this mind, but every member in the community saying, have this mind among you. Paul is saying, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, before we go any further, when we cross over the threshold of verse five of chapter two, we are entering exceptionally holy ground. All of scripture is holy ground. It's God breathed. But I believe verse five, in verse five, Paul is presenting us with the mind of Christ. (laughs) That is to say, Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is letting us in on what was in the mind of Jesus as he was acting out the very thing which saved our souls for eternity. This is sacred ground. This is the mind of the risen Christ. One commentator was, was commenting, he said, the, the idea is, it's, it's like asking your friend who just did something, like went on a, an amazing trip or did something really unique, and you ask your friend, what was in your mind when you did that? What were you thinking? Or when you do something utterly foolish, which is usually the case, in my, what on earth were you thinking? What was in your mind? That's the idea. Paul is saying, I am now going to, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Pull the curtains back for the church to see and understand the mind of Christ. What was in your mind, Jesus, to purchase a salvation for sinners? This is holy ground. As another writes, we do well to remember that this privilege is given to us not to satisfy our curiosity. This is not a Bible study merely. We're not just nerding out on Greek and Hebrew. We, we, we should remember that this privilege is given to us, this understanding the mind of Christ, not to satisfy our curiosity, but to reform our very lives. So with that caveat, how, how do we live this worthy life as a church? to count others more significant than ourselves, because that is, that's an impossible task. How do we do it? Paul says, verse five, and let's read to, to verse eight. Have this mind, this mindset, disposition, attitude among yourselves, which is yours. It's currently yours. In Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he, who is the he there? It's Jesus, but go back up to verse 6. He, who was in the form of God. So the one who furthermore did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, this same God empties himself 
and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I wonder this morning, beloved, are you stunned by what you just read? Are you stunned by that? The one who did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, emptied himself, humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a Roman cross, the worst way to go. Or are you like me struggling to be stunned by that? And as a result, I'm I'm struggling to count others more significant than myself. Do you see the progression? The less stunned we are at the grace of God in Jesus Christ, the less compelled we are towards others' needs. Full stop. But do you, like me, desire to see our church grow in humility and service of others? Then Paul says to all of us, consider Jesus Christ. Christ. What's the medicine for an ingrown heart? Consider Jesus Christ. What is the medicine for apathy and and indifference towards other needs? Consider Jesus Christ. Consider him the second member of the Holy Trinity, pre-existent and eternal maker of heaven and earth, the one for whom angels cry, holy, holy, holy. Consider him If you're anything like me and you have apathy in your heart to the needs of these people in here, consider Jesus. Watch him as he empties himself. The one who was entitled to make claims on everything and everyone acted like he was the most unentitled person. Are you stunned by that? Consider him, watch him. Watch this Jesus as as he's born in a feeding trough, born a baby, one that could be handed off to aunts and uncles, one who had to be fed, one who had to, 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 to go from milk to soft food and he was stumbling. Consider him the maker of heaven and earth. Watch him. If you're struggling like me to find meeting the needs of other people is harder than it it looks, consider Jesus. Watch him as he has no place to lay his head, though he's the maker of heaven and earth. Watch him as he consistently and constantly humbles himself. So much that he becomes obedient to the point of death on a Roman cross. Our only hope of living in this vision for Christian unity is to not take our eyes off of him. So much so that he, Christ, is obedient to the point of death. We must watch him. We must consider him. We must see his unselfish humility and marvel at his lack of entitlement. Everyone owed him everything, yet he gave his life for them. 
Why do we walk around like anyone owes us anything? Nobody owes us anything. Paul says, let that mind be in you. Let that mind be in you. There is no oxygen for entitlement or ego to breathe when we're stunned by the work of our Lord. There's no oxygen for ego when we're staring at the cross of Christ. Because that's the one who didn't deserve that and was entitled to kings and kingdoms and palaces and banquets. There's no oxygen. And and beloved, this is why the means of grace are so important. Coming to church, first day of the week. Why? Because we're forced to look again to recall again, to remember again. This is why daily Bible reading is important. Not so you can just do the thing, but so that you st- the, the oxygen for ego gets sucked out of the room when you look at the pages of Scripture. That's why prayer is important. To remind you of your dependence upon God. Not pray and read, pray and read, just to pray and read. Pray and read, pray and read. To live, to breathe, to see correctly. That's why we pray and read. That's why we come to church. You and I will find a thousand ways to serve each other when we're looking at Jesus. You, will, you and I, because we want to do it. If you want to do something, you're going to do it. You'll find a million ways to serve someone. So feel free to ask the question, Pastor, I'm, I'm moved by this. I want to serve here. Praise God. I think that's, that's good. But I want to also say, don't wait for a ministry or a program to get plugged into. Find people. Find people. How do you find people? You look at them. <laughs> you look at their faces. You see their eyes. Bloodshot. Crying. Thinking. Worried. And you ask a question, how are you doing this morning? How are you doing really? I don't know you. I'd like to get to know you. Is there anything I can pray for? Is there anything I can do? You just look for people. And if you want to do it, you'll do it. If you don't want to do it, you won't do it. We'll find a thousand ways to serve each other when we look at the cross of Christ. Amen? So God, grant us the mind of Christ again and again and again. Then we'll close with verses 9 through 11. Paul just explodes with worship. As if our minds and hearts couldn't be any more transfixed on the person of Christ, Paul explodes into all-out doxology. That word doxology is fancy for giving glory, doxa in the Greek, weight, 
glory. A doxology is giving glory to God. That's when we sing praise God from who? That's a doxology. We're giving praise to God. And that's what happens here in verses 9 through 11. Paul explodes in an all-out doxology, a declaration of praise and exaltation to the absolute supremacy of Christ. And although he did humble himself to the point of death on a cross, the grave was not able to hold him. So Paul is no longer looking at the cross anymore. He's looking at the ascended Christ now. After Christ made the full payment for the sins of his people and after he was buried for three days, Christ reigned victorious over sin and death in his resurrection and his ascension. Therefore, Paul writes in verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's almost as if Paul gets distracted by the glory of Christ. He's, he's saying, let this mind be in you. And he recounts the gospel. Christ, fully God, empties himself, becomes a slave, dies for your sins. And then Paul's like, but that, it's not done. He just gets distracted by the glory of Christ. He can't help himself. It wells up in him as he considers the ascended Christ, the king of glory. Remember Pilate as he's looking at the battered and bloodied Jesus with a crown of thorns twisted on his head and his robe drenched with his own blood. Remember what Pilate said. Are you a king? Are you a king? And what does Jesus say? You say rightly, I am a king. In his first coming... Christ came in obscurity. That wasn't a foolish question from Pilate. That was an understandable question. Jesus did not look like a king in that moment or any king that Pilate had ever seen. That was a good question. Are you a king? In his first coming, he came in obscurity. His glory was hidden. His throne was a cross. His life was common. However, there is coming a day when his glory will not be hidden. Instead, every single creature in the universe will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. There will be no obscurity. There will be no veil. There will be no, oh, poor Jesus anymore when he comes in glory. And to make this absolutely clear, Paul in verses 10 and 11, he quotes Isaiah 45, 23, which is remarkable that he does this. And he attributes Isaiah 45, 23 to Jesus. Here's Isaiah 45, 23. We read it in our call to worship. By myself, I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return 
to me. This is Yahweh speaking. This is the Lord of hosts. This is the maker of heaven and earth. To me, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. And Paul says, that's Jesus. You want to know what God looks like? You have the full explanation in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And by quoting Isaiah 45 and attributing it to Christ, again, Paul is making no uncertain claim on the divinity, the absolute pure divinity of Jesus Christ. Anybody who tells you different does not know their Bible. Jesus is God, full stop. That's the hill we're going to die on here. And there is coming a day, Paul says, when all will acknowledge it. There will be no secrets. There will be no messianic seek. Don't tell anybody about this. There'll be no cloaking, no veiling. It will be full sunlight for all. Jesus Christ is Lord and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess whether they want to or not, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is a primer to our Supremacy of Christ series. Starting in May, we're going to take 12 weeks and just sit under that reality that Jesus Christ is above all. But let me close now by just drawing your attention to one, two verses that come after this amazing doxology. Look at what Paul says in verses 17 and 18 of chapter two. This is what he says to the church as he's in chains, after he just explodes with worship. He says, verse 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is crazy if it isn't true. If it's true, it's beautiful and I want it. In light of Christ's work in the gospel and in light of Christ's future exaltation, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, Paul says, I am ready to die for you. I'm ready to die for you. So, so if you're hungry, I'll give you food. If you're thirsty, I'll give you something to eat. If you're low on cash, I'll give you cash. But more than that, I'm ready to be poured out as a drink offering on the altar of your faith so that you continue in the Lord, I'll die. And in chapter one, he's going through this conundrum. Remember in chapter one, I don't know, it's for me to, to die or to live. It's better to, to die because I get to be with Christ, but I'll live because I'm, I'm with you. Ah, oh, for, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Paul is ready to die in his service for others. Because he is so convinced that the cross really happened and that Christ is really coming and that life is really short. Beloved, we will find a thousand ways to serve each other 
when we look at the, the life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus Christ. Brevity of life becomes really clear. May the Lord grant us the mind of Christ. And may the Lord fashion us into a church, into a church that finds our greatest joy in serving the needs of others and not our own.